We'll hear argument now in number 91913, John R. Patterson, trustee versus Joseph B. Shoemate. Mr. Aggie, is that the correct pronunciation? It's Aggie, Mr. Chief Justice. Aggie? Yes, Mr. Aggie. Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case involves the disposition in bankruptcy of a debtor's interest in an ERISA-qualified pension plan which is terminated. The ERISA policy of safeguarding benefits in a participant's plan crosses with the bankruptcy policy of marshalling all of a debtor's assets for the payment of creditors in return for a fresh start. The trustee in bankruptcy's position is that the ERISA benefit is included as an asset of the bankruptcy estate, subject to any exemption that exists under the code. If this is the law, what are the public policy results of it? Would there be multitudes left destitute by attachment of the pension interest in bankruptcy? Would pension plans be canceled or pension plan administration made untenable? And would there be an improper change to the uniformity of application of ERISA rules? I would submit that the answer to those questions is no. Most plan participants would not be affected in the event that the ERISA plan benefit were included as part of their estate should they take bankruptcy. The first ground of defense in that case would be the spendthrift type protection that exists in an ERISA plan by reason of ERISA's requirement that every plan have an anti-alienation protection. For instance, if you, whether you worked on the line for Ford Motor Company or were the chief executive officer, your ability to control the distribution out of the pension plan for your benefit the day before you filed bankruptcy would be extremely limited if existing at all. As with the Coleman Furniture Corporation case, if someone worked on the line building chairs for Coleman Furniture Corporation, they would have no control over the plan. They would have no access to be able to get any benefits out of the plan. Uh, Mr. Justice White, I think what that has to do with is establishing that plan participants have very little uh, exposure, by and large, whenever if the uh, interest of their entitlement of the beneficiary. It protects the entitlement of the beneficiary. Let me go directly, if, in answer to that question, to the legal argument with respect to an exclusion and an exemption out of the bankruptcy code. Congress has only apparently spoken one time directly, either in ERISA or the bankruptcy code, as to when an exemption for an ERISA benefit would exist. In the exemption section of the bankruptcy code, Congress specifically said that the debtor's interest in a pension plan, qualified under Section 401A, would be exempt, limited to the reasonable needs of the debtor. That establishes an exemption in bankruptcy which could not exist if the interest in the ERISA plan is first excluded from the estate under Section 541C2 of the code. But this section, this section applies to all pension plans. Or not? Section 522. Mm. Section 522 makes, makes a division into two, two different categories. In, for instance, the District of Columbia, which is a non-opt-out state, it uses the federal exemptions. In opt-out states, such as Virginia, which are, is the majority of states, they do not have this reasonable needs of the debtor limitation. However, if there exists... Yeah, but they, it would apply to... <coughs> Not just uh, ERISA 
pension plans, wouldn't it? That, that's correct. 522. Well, we have a, but it's an ERISA plan. You have a provision in ERISA plans that may not be present in other plans. But, Namely, but, that it's not subject to attachment. That's, Mr. Justice Weiss, that's, that's correct. And I would say that the key point that comes out of that is that if there is first an exclusion out of the bankruptcy estate by virtue of the applicable non-bankruptcy law language in Section 541c2, then you would never be able to get to the exemption provision. That would, in effect, write out of the code in the non-opt-out states the provision that limits to the reasonable needs of the debtor the exemption under ERISA. Well, the, um, on your provision, you're writing out of the code uh, uh, ERISA as a uh, non-bankruptcy applicable law. I th that, that's correct in, in a sense, Mr. Justice White, for two reasons. One, if you attribute to the language in 522D10E, the plain meaning that Congress has written in that there is to be an exemption limited to the reasonable needs of the debtor. You write out, effectively, an exclusion if it were to exist under 541c2. Otherwise, that serves no function. That's true. There are church plans and, and some government plans that would still function under the Section 522d. However, the reasonable needs limitation would be written out. Where do we find the text of 522b2a? I mean, uh, other than the U.S. Code, where in the briefs? It would, in uh, my brief, Mr. Chief Justice, it would be in the petition for cert. Is it at Appendix 1A, the petition for cert? That's correct, page 60A in the petition for certiorari. Thank you. The bankruptcy trustee would be able to access, if the ERISA benefit is included as part of the estate, only that to which the debtor could have, could have accessed. If there was no ability of the debtor to get into the plan at the time that he filed bankruptcy to take something out, the bankruptcy trustee could accede to no greater right than the debtor had. That is another reason that I believe that the inclusion in the estate of the ERISA benefit would be of limited significance to most participants in most plans. Well, it might be of limited significance, but it's still the case that there, there is not a complete identity of the subjects to which the exclusion and the exemption apply. So you, you cannot, I take it you agree, you cannot make the argument uh, that, uh, that the, the one is rendered uh, sort of uh, totally uh, useless by the other. Mr. Justice Souter, I do to this extent that if you, if, if you conclude first that there is an omnibus exclusion of ERISA benefits under 541c2, using that applicable non-bankruptcy law language, then if you came to the exemption section, the only place where the Congress apparently has, has said explicitly this is where we're dealing with an ERISA benefit, and it has placed at least in the non-opt-out states a limitation to the reasonable needs of the debtor, I submit that that is written out of the code because you've created first an omnibus exclusion. That may be written out with respect to the ERISA plans, but there are still going to be plans covered by uh, the exemption that are not covered by the exclusion. Isn't that correct? That, that is correct. There are some plans that would be covered. When the uh, drafting was done on Section 522D, 
the Commission on the Bankruptcy Laws uh, language you're talking about. Text of the reasonable needs. 60A, isn't it? No. 522D, I think, will be in cited in my brief. Uh, where is the text? I want the text. That would be page 3. Page 3 of your brief? Yes, Mr. Chief Thank you. But if there is an inclusion of the ERISA benefit where the actual trust protection of the plan doesn't cover it for some reason, or if the bankruptcy trustee was able to access an asset that the debtor could actually reach into the plan and take out, there would still remain the exemptions available in bankruptcy under Section 522D. I would submit that plan administration would not be affected to any significant degree because the processing of many, many qualified domestic relations orders would be no different than the processing of the bankruptcy order to pay out part of the pension plan. Mr. Ajit, can I ask you a question? Yes. I must confess I'm having a little difficulty following the argument. As I understood the Court of Appeals, they analyzed the case under 541c2 and found it unnecessary to reach 522. Is that correct? That's correct. And am I also correct that your argument based on this D2, whatever the... Is relates solely to 522? Um, now, Mr. Justice Stevens, what I'm saying is that the plain meaning of, of this 522D, the exemption provision, as Congress writing for the, for the only time, either in the bankruptcy code or ERISA, how will we treat ERISA benefits in bankruptcy? It doesn't refer to ERISA, though. That, that, that's why you mislead me. I'm looking around. It doesn't say ERISA. Well, it, it refers to... If on page four, uh, three triple I's, plans that, it's, it's done in the negative, but plans that qualify under section 401A, and that is, that is ERISA. Exclusively ERISA, nothing but ERISA? No, it include, that, that would include other types of plans, including government plans. Yeah, but that shoots your argument. Well, I hope that it does. That utterly destroys your argument. Because that the, if, if, you're gonna, if you're going to accord plain meaning to this particular section, then Reasonable needs limitations for private plans, pension plans, stock bonus plans, profit-sharing plans, that's, that's gone. And when this section was drafted, placed into the code, the bankruptcy commissioner's report was very specific in what they wanted to get at here. They were to exempt the private employer plans. And the reason that the reasonable needs limitation was put in there was in the recognition, as here, that there would be substantial benefits held by corporate officers and by members of professional corporations. That's exactly what I think the Congress was trying to get at in this provision. But even if ERISA is excluded under the earlier provision, you would still need this provision to cover some plans other than ERISA, as to which you wanted only the reasonable needs limitation. Isn't that right? So it would still make sense. It would still make sense as long as it is, if, if you read out of 522D, the coverage for pension plans, stock bonus plans, and profit-sharing plans, which would be private plans. Right. And I don't think the Congress would have intended that if they would have included that language in the statute. Maybe not, but you can't say that it's utterly illogical. You might say that it doesn't cover very much, but it still covers something that you would need that language to cover, despite the fact that you had excluded ERISA earlier. It would, that's correct. It would still continue to cover a government plan a or a state plan. Yeah. There's another issue here in dealing in, in, in particular with the exemption question. 
which differentiates this particular case from other cases the court has heard before. When there have been garnishment or levy statutes, state statutes which have attempted to reach into a pension plan and take something out, they have been preempted by the language in ERISA, Section 514A, which preempts state law. But ERISA also includes another section that some would call a federal preemption statute, which does not say that ERISA overrides other federal law, but it says that ERISA will not impair, invalidate, or supersede other federal law. And I would submit that the bankruptcy code entering the picture fits into that circumstance, that if the all-inclusive scope of Section 541 of the code, which is to include all of a debtor's legal and equitable interests in property, are brought into the code, that if the anti-alienation provision of ERISA overrides it, then it has impaired, superseded, and certainly modified the all-inclusive scope of property that was intended to be included in the bankruptcy estate. If you do reach the supposition that there is not an exclusion of ERISA benefits from the bankruptcy estate, there would still remain the question under Section 522 as to what kind of an exemption exists, if any, in an opt-out state. The bankruptcy trustee's position would be that there is, there are exemptions, but that they are limited to the exemptions created by state law. ERISA is... Let me back up just a second, because I want to be sure I understand your argument. 541c2 says that a restriction on the transfer of beneficial interest of the debtor and a trust that is enforceable under applicable non-bankruptcy law is enforceable in a case under this title. Are you contending that ERISA is not applicable non-bankruptcy law? I do, Mr. Justice Stevens, for several reasons. But I didn't understand you had made that argument yet. That's the argument the Court of Appeals addressed and disagreed with. That's correct. Now, why are they wrong? There are several reasons. The first is this articulation that I had attempted to make that says the Congress has dealt with ERISA benefits as a matter of exemption over here in 522d, and they put this reasonable needs limitation in here. So if you say first under 541c2 that you exclude all the benefits, then with respect to the private employer plans, which are the prime focus of the exemption section, not the exclusive, but a primary, that the reasonable needs limitation isn't going to be there for any of those ERISA benefits, a plain meaning type argument. So you say to G these two sections, you have to just say that ERISA is not a non-bankruptcy law, applicable non-bankruptcy law. In this particular section. Congress has specifically dealt with the issue in another section. That is the primary argument, Justice Breyer. What kind of a non-bankruptcy law would be, what kind of a law would be an applicable non-bankruptcy law? In that section, 541c2, the argument has been made in all the other lower courts that the law, applicable non-bankruptcy law is limited to state law in that section. There are other sections in the bankruptcy code where that term means both state and federal law. But under the two. Can I interrupt you again? Why wouldn't your argument about making the reasonable needs thing superfluous apply also to a state law of spendthrift trust? Because there you have no reasonable needs limitation if it qualifies as spendthrift trust under state law. 
If it qualifies, if you, if you accept the bankruptcy trustee's argument that state law is applicable non-bankruptcy law only here, and the spendthrift trust protection applies, then it has taken the property out of the estate, uh, this specific statutory exclusion, before you get to the exemption provision. Exactly. And in the, in, the, in the legislative history of this section, the discussion is on the continuing over of the pre-code practice of honoring spendthrift trust protection under state law. There are the two most closely related sections in the bankruptcy code to this one, which are 541c1 that deals with what law interferes with uh, the inclusion of property in the estate, and 522b2b, which is tenants by the entirety property. The phrase applicable non-bankruptcy law is limited to state law in those cases, the two most closely related. So with that degree of difference between the statutes, I think it is legitimate to look beyond it into the legislative history to see this indication towards state law. But if, if ERISA then boils down to a question of exemption, the question in the non-opt-out state is settled, the reasonable needs of the debtor. But in the states that don't opt out, would it exist as a federal exemption? The legislative history, again, of that section makes no mention of ERISA as, as an exemption. And in addition, ERISA is dressed by statutory reference directly in the non-opt-out section, 522D, but not addressed in the opt-out section, which is 522B2A. It also points out the difference in the type of anti-alienation protection that ERISA provides if you compare it, I think, with just about any other federal protection statute. Social Security, Civil Service, Foreign Service benefits. Those statutes provide a direct prohibition on any type of alienation, garnishment, or levy. ERISA, though, provides a derivative-type protection. It doesn't say these assets shall not be garnished. It provides that the ERISA plan must contain a provision that, pro that prohibits alienation. And that is successful in the non-bankruptcy context because of the state preemption provision in ERISA, where ERISA overrides all of the state laws. But with the provision in ERISA that says that it will not impair or supersede another federal statute, then I think that pointing up the difference in the type of exemption ERISA puts out is, is authority for there being no federal exemption under 522. Ex the exemption provisions in the bankruptcy code are essentially state-based exemptions. If the Congress had wanted to do otherwise, then 522D would be the only provision there. That is why, for instance, Virginia has a $5,000 homestead exemption, and Texas has a virtually unlimited exemption. Lastly, I would add a word about the, the rule that the Court has discussed in Duesnip versus Tim, extending the Mid-Atlantic National Bank case. In those cases where there is a pre-code practice, unless it is set aside by specific language of the bankruptcy code or by the legislative history, that practice carries over post-code. There was a pre-code, and in fact in some cases post-ERISA practice, that included assets from a plan which were in pay status, such as we have here from a terminated plan prior to the time that uh, Chapter 7 proceedings began. This practice is not negated in the bankruptcy code or even mentioned in the legislative history, and I will submit that that practice carries over under the 
under the, the rule from the Duesnip and Mid-Atlantic cases. The inclusion of the ERISA benefits would cover comparatively few participants, but it would cover those who have the ability to access plan assets the day before they file bankruptcy. And I would submit if the, if the policy consideration is that we want to protect this stream of income, if the debtor has the ability to take it out, he can just as easily go to Mexico with it as he can use it for any type of retirement benefit. There is no restriction on it if, if the debtor can get that property out before he files for bankruptcy. That's what this case would cover. I would also submit it does harmonize the federal exemption provision and the ERISA federal preemption provision by including the asset in the bankruptcy estate. And it honors the pre-code practice of including in the bankruptcy estate those assets which are in pay status at the time that the debtor files for bankruptcy. Mr. Chief Justice, I would like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Agee. Mr. Hennekins? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Mr. Shumate's interest in the Coleman Furniture Company pension plan should be excluded from the bankruptcy estate for three reasons. First, it's required by the plain meaning of Section 541C2 of the Bankruptcy Code. Second, no judicial exception should be made to the considered congressional policy choice that this Court recognized in Guidry uh, for beneficiaries who file bankruptcy. And third, property interests should be treated the same whether a debtor is in bankruptcy or outside of bankruptcy. Turning to the first reason, the plain meaning, the language of Section 541C2 says that where a trust contains an enforceable restriction on the transfer of a beneficial interest that is enforceable under applicable bankruptcy law, the restriction is recognized in bankruptcy and operates to exclude that interest from assets of the bankruptcy estate. Is applicable non-bankruptcy law. Applicable non-bankruptcy law, yes, Your Honor. Certainly, ERISA qualifies as applicable non-bankruptcy law. A lot of ERISA plans are pension plans, aren't they? Yes, Mr. Justice. Well, uh, 522 uh, speaks of pension plans and says how much of it uh, can be uh, exempted. And, and how do you, why do you exclude uh, ERISA plans from that provision? The reason, Mr. Justice White, that ERISA uh, plans exclude from 541c2 uh, is because ERISA requires that qualified plans, the pension plan, uh, the assets be held in a trust. It also requires uh, that the trust impose a restriction uh, on the transfer of a beneficiary's interest in the trust. So for those two reasons, it qualifies as well, I know, but my question is, uh, why, uh, why doesn't uh, an ERISA plan fall under 522D, where it says, uh, where it limits the amount uh, of a pension plan that, uh, uh, that is exempt from administration? There may very well be a slight overlap between the two provisions. 
But that is not necessarily fatal. Section 522 deals with 522D10E deals with many different kinds of pension plans. And in addition to pension plans, deals with profit-sharing plans uh, and, and other types of interest such as stock bonus plans. It also would cover unqualified plans, uh, such as a deferred compensation plan. So the universe covered by 522 D10 is very different from the restriction in 541C2, which covers only a small majority, uh, a minority of these, uh, of these plans, which is the ERISA qualified plan. And then to get to the section three little I's, uh, uh, which covers uh, a restriction for insiders, basically, when a plan is established uh, that says, well, for them, under Section 522, uh, only uh, plans that qualify uh, under these certain sections uh, of the Internal Revenue Code can be exempted. Again, there are many types of plans that are included within that provision. For instance, IRAs would be uh, included, an individual retirement account. Uh, which is uh, not an ERISA-qualified plan. Uh, also included, uh, uh, as Petitioner mentions, would be the, the church plans and government plans, which are ERISA-qualified plans that do not contain an anti-alienation provision. So the exemption would be necessary because those assets are not held in a trust and are not subject to the exclusion of Section 541 uh, uh, C of the Bankruptcy Code. Turning back to the plain meaning of Section 541, nothing in the statute itself suggests that Section 541 C2 was meant to refer only to state spendthrift trust law, as the petitioner suggests. Uh, there, the, the term applicable non-bankruptcy law uh, is intentionally broad, uh, and it is unqualified on its face. Uh, in other uh, portions of the bankruptcy code, that same term is used, and in each occurrence it uh, refers to both federal law and state law, and not simply to uh, uh, state law. How can you be certain of that, Mr. Hankins? Has that been con con if these other provisions that you say uh, do that have been uh, definitively construed by the courts? Mr. Chief Justice, they've not been con uh, definitively construed. We have set forth uh, in, in our brief a number of occurrences, and the, and the Fourth Circuit set forth a number of occurrences where the phrase was used throughout the bankruptcy code, and in each one of those circumstances, the Fourth Circuit observed that it was uh, referring to uh, uh, both federal and, and state law. How did the first Fourth Circuit know that? from the context within which the, uh, the language was used in, in a particular place. For instance, uh, referring to the securities laws uh, uh, and uh, referring to copyright law. Uh, those types of references are obviously uh, uh, incorporating federal law as well as state law. This court has said time and again that courts must presume that a legislature says in a statute what it means. Uh, when the language is unambiguous, judicial inquiry uh, is complete. Uh, I would submit there is no uh, basis, no reason to refer 
uh, to the legislative history uh, in this case, as Petitioner argues. Uh, but even if the Court were, the legislative history uh, does nothing more than suggest that Congress intended for Spendthrift Trust Law uh, to be included within the scope of 541c2. Uh, it certainly doesn't suggest anywhere that ERISA was meant to be excluded from it. The second reason uh, is that, as this Court recognized in Guidry, the anti-alienation provision in ERISA reflects a considered congressional policy choice. That decision uh, was to safeguard a stream of income for pensioners. And even if that decision, this court wrote, prevents others from securing relief for wrongs done. If exceptions are to be made, this court wrote, it's for Congress to make them. No exception should be made here. Uh, for a debtor who files bankruptcy. Indeed, if employee malfeasance and criminal misconduct did not justify the creation of an exemption, the mere filing of a bankruptcy petition should not. Furthermore, the policies of ERISA and of the Bankruptcy Code are not incompatible. The bank, ERISA is entirely compatible with the fresh start policy uh, of the Bankruptcy Code. Indeed, if a debtor such as Mr. Shoemate is, who is entirely dependent upon his retirement benefit for his livelihood, is to have any type of fresh start, his retirement income uh, must be protected. A fresh start means protecting that retirement income. The anti-alienation uh, provision uh, is not dependent uh, upon state Spendthrift Trust Law. When this court uh, decided Guidry, the court did not refer to the state Spendthrift Trust Law of Colorado to determine whether or not the uh, uh, pension benefits in that case uh, could be uh, uh, subject, subjected uh, to a constructive trust. And that would be contrary to ERISA's policy of national uniformity. Uh, the enforcement uh, would become dependent on the vagaries of state spendthrift trust laws. State spendthrift trust law varies from state to state. In some states, creditors can reach the corpus of spendthrift trusts. And in other states, spendthrift trusts have been abolished altogether. Furthermore, contrary to what petitioner suggests, most... You mean it doesn't cover spendthrift trusts? In, in some states, spendthrift trust law has been abolished altogether. Yeah, but in those states where, where there is spendthrift trust laws, they would apply. They'd be an applicable law, wouldn't they? They most certainly would be an applicable law. So that problem of, of having somewhat varying and inconsistent state laws apply, I mean, that problem exists no matter what, doesn't it? Mr. Justice, I, I'm suggesting that uh, ERISA... Uh, has its own, by virtue of the anti-alienation provision, uh, which has been pre preempts state law, uh, it is the end of the uh, analysis with regard to whether or not uh, it can be sub the, the pension benefit can be subjected to creditor process. Once you have an ERISA plan, I, I, I understand, but but you're you're not suggesting that courts would not have to. Uh, grapple with varying state laws uh, with respect to spendthrift trusts under this provision anyway. I mean, in, in some other instances, that they will have to do that. that. That is correct. But just not for ERISA plans. Just not for ERISA plans. 
and, and the reason uh, it's not just for, for ERISA plans and why it's important is because many of the practices that ERISA actively encourages would be prohibited uh, or, or, or violate the spendthrift trust laws in certain jurisdictions. For example, uh, allowing employees to make matching contributions would violate the spendthrift trust laws uh, in, in various states. Uh, allowing for hardship withdrawals would violate the spendthrift trust laws in various states. Uh, furthermore, uh, uh, many spendthrift trust laws would treat as self-settled uh, a plan uh, where an employee can reach his retirement benefit upon termination, uh, a provision that ERISA requires. Uh, for these reasons, uh, Congress uh, chose to preempt the area and to avoid these nuances of uh, state spendthrift trust law. Furthermore, on the element of control, no fact-based inquiry uh, under state law is necessary and no exception is necessary. ERISA already contains adequate safeguards to protect against the type of uh, potential mischief that could occur, uh, as suggested by the petitioner. Uh, ERISA uh, places limits uh, on the amounts that an individual can contribute to a plan. Uh, it places uh, uh, limits uh, on the ability to develop short-term plans. Uh, and it also has uh, requirements on the type and number of employees uh, that would be covered under a plan. Uh, ERISA has stringent fiduciary requirements, uh, and the Secretary of Labor is given broad enforcement powers, as is the Internal Revenue Service, uh, which can disqualify a plan for violation uh, and trigger significant adverse tax consequences. Furthermore, Section 548 of the Bankruptcy Code would give a trustee uh, the right to avoid fraudulent conveyances uh, made by a person in control during the year preceding the filing of the bankruptcy petition. Uh, these safeguards uh, are adequate, uh, and uh, the type of exception that is being advocated by petitioner uh, uh, is not necessary, and in fact it would destroy uh, the uniformity uh, that Congress sought to achieve. Uh, it would also uh, destroy many of the provisions encouraged by ERISA uh, to foster growth of uh, pension plans. The third reason uh, why Sh Mr. Shumate's interest in the retirement plan should be included, uh, should uh, not be included uh, in the bankruptcy estate uh, is because of the disparate treatment uh, that the property interest would be given inside of bankruptcy as opposed to outside of bankruptcy. Uh, if a bankruptcy exception uh, to the ERISA's anti-alienation provision were to be uh, created, then a debtor outside of bankruptcy would enjoy greater rights than a debtor who is inside of bankruptcy. Uh, this Court has previously recognized uh, that there should be uniformity of treatment of property interests uh, in those circumstances. How would that come about, Mr. Hennigans, what you, what you just say? It's the restriction on the voluntary or involuntary alien, uh, alienation of ERISA plans is uniformly enforced outside of bankruptcy. Petitioner acknowledges that. So that under Virginia law, for instance, no creditor can reach through garnishment, attachment, or any other vehicle that benefit. But a creditor could force uh, an individual into bankruptcy, either by an involuntary filing or other uh, 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 pressure, uh, collection pressure, uh, and thereby reach the retirement benefit. So that the retirement benefit would have a different status inside of bankruptcy, where it would be vulnerable to creditors, as opposed to outside of bankruptcy, where it would be protected. Well, that's, uh, 
it seems to me the, the whole purpose of the bankruptcy law is to collect assets that had never, that had never been collected before and protected and made available to creditors. And, the, and if you have exemptions that operate outside of bankruptcy by virtue of state law, don't those same uh, exemptions continue to operate in bankruptcy even though it's a part of the estate? The easy answer, Mr. Chief Justice, is yes, but in the area of ERISA, what we're finding is that ERISA preemption provisions are being held to preempt state law exemptions. And so what you're ending up with in many jurisdictions, such as in the Ninth Circuit, uh, are a complete inability uh, for uh, debtors to exempt retirement benefits, uh, either by exclusion or exemption. Mr. Justice White, in response to your question, uh, the policy of the bankruptcy code uh, is to uh, allow a trustee to assemble assets and to step into the shoes uh, of of the debtor and to uh, assemble the assets and liquidate them for the benefit of creditors. But property is just treated differently uh, in a bankruptcy proceeding than it is outside of bankruptcy. I would respectfully say no, uh, that inside of bankruptcy, the property interests uh, are the same as those outside of bankruptcy. A trustee uh, has a few additional powers that support or promote uh, the, the concept of equality of distribution among creditors, such as being able to avoid preferences uh, uh, and, and pursuing fraudulent conveyances. Well, outside of bankruptcy, creditors can just sue and attach. Inside of bankruptcy, they can't. That's exactly right, uh, uh, Justice. The property is treated differently. The, the, the property is subjected to an automatic stay, so the creditors cannot reach the property, but the property is there to be liquidated for the benefit of the creditors by a trustee and then equally divided among all creditors uh, under the distribution provisions of the bankruptcy code rather than allowing one creditor to attach and, and, and beat out the other creditors. And that would be the policy difference that would occur in bankruptcy. But with regard to what property can be reached, uh, the, the laws uh, are uniform inside of bankruptcy and out. Otherwise, creditors would be encouraged to file involuntary bankruptcies and force creditors uh, into bankruptcy, uh, uh, which is a policy that has not been encouraged under the law. Finally, I would like to address for just one moment uh, the suggestion uh, about uh, the pay status uh, in this case. Uh, in petitioner's uh, uh, brief in response, it suggests that this case uh, was already in a pay status uh, and suggests uh, uh, a date that was subsequent to the filing of the bankruptcy petition uh, by Mr. Uh, Shoemate. Uh, Mr. Shoemate filed bankruptcy a month before the date that petitioner contends the plan was terminated. In fact, this plan, the trust, held these assets for three years after the date that petitioner suggests uh, was the termination date, which I would suggest is an artificial date. And in any event, a bankruptcy estate uh, is created under Section 541 upon the filing of the bankruptcy petition and not upon any date of conversion. Uh, And Section uh, uh, 348 bears that out uh, in the bankruptcy code. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hennikins. Uh, Mr. Wright, we'll hear from you.
Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, two of my main points have, have been made by the Court, and so let me try to deal with them very briefly. First, I think it's been pointed out that the linchpin of the bankruptcy trustee's position is that ERISA is not an applicable non-bankruptcy law. Uh, but it certainly would seem on the face of those words that ERISA is applicable non-bankruptcy law. Indeed, the, the Fifth Circuit, which uh, ruled contrary to our position in Goff, uh, acknowledged the facially broad language of the statute and went on uh, not to follow the facially broad, broad language of the statute because it felt that the legislative history suggested that uh, applicable non-bankruptcy law was limited to state spendthrift trust law. I would suggest that that's not a proper way to read the statute. Applicable non-bankruptcy law would seem to cover ERISA. If that is so, then in those cases where a pension plan has an anti-alienation provision mandated by ERISA, then the benefits are excluded from the bankruptcy estate under the plain language of the exclusion provision. The second point that has also been made is that the exemption provisions uh, are not contrary to the straightforward reading that I've just tried to give to the exclusion provision. The exemption provision that Petitioner has focused on today is, is the 522D10E provision, which discusses pension plans. Uh, the court seems to understand clearly uh, two points about this. First, that provision covers all sorts of pension plans, not just pension plans that qualify for tax benefits under ERISA. If a, those sorts of pension plans, those that aren't qualified under ERISA, of course, do not contain an ERISA-mandated uh, anti-alienation provision. And in cases involving such benefits, they would not necessarily be excluded from the bankruptcy estate and therefore might be subject to exemption under 522D. Let me add that there are three significant categories of pension plans that qualify for tax benefits under ERISA and yet are not required by the statute to have an anti-alienation provision. And those are governmental pension plans, church pension plans, and individual retirement accounts. Again, under our reading of the statute, those plans are not necessarily uh, excluded from the bankruptcy estate. Interest in such plans would only be excluded if they happen to qualify under state spendthrift trust law, but interest in such plans are subject to exemption under Section 522D10E. Um, and without Section 522D10E, interest in such plans might be totally distributed to creditors in bankruptcy proceedings. So Section 522D10E serves the very important function in cases involving individual retirement accounts, governmental plans, and church plans of protecting pension assets to the extent reasonably necessary uh, to the creditor's fresh start. If applicable non-bankruptcy law is read to include ERISA, then the statutes harmonize. The anti-alienation provision is given its full force. If it is read in the restrictive manner that petitioner proposes, there's a real clash. The anti-alienation provision is not given its force. We contend that it would be doubly erroneous 
to read applicable non-bankruptcy law not in a straightforward manner in order to induce a clash between two statutes should be read straightforwardly uh, to harmonize the statutes. Many federal agencies are, of course, frequently creditors in bankruptcy proceedings. Um, We considered that carefully and concluded, nevertheless, that the language of ERISA and the language of the bankruptcy code compel the conclusion that pension benefits protected by ERISA's mandatory anti-alienation provision may not be distributed to creditors either in or outside of bankruptcy. And that is our submission to this court. Thank you, Mr. Wright. Mr. Agee, you have eight minutes remaining. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, I have only three points in rebuttal. With respect to the Guidry case, the first major distinction of Guidry is, of course, that it was not a bankruptcy case. Unlike a lot of previous decisions that dealt with the application of ERISA protecting benefits from state law claims, Guidry did involve another federal statute. But the, the point of distinction, as I recall the course of opinion, was that the statute in effect there, the Labor Management Relations Act, had its own savings clause, its own preemption provision that said it would not interfere with another federal law. And the court concluded, in effect, that the ERISA provision that says it will not modify or impair other federal law, the two trumped each other. And therefore, ERISA uh, could prevail over the Labor Management Relations Act. But in this case, there is no similar provision in the bankruptcy code. and There is no exception in ERISA or anywhere else that I'm aware of from this federal preemption provision within ERISA itself that would make the bankruptcy code subservient to ERISA in that circumstance. There's some discussion of the concept of the fresh start, which is an important part of of the bankruptcy code's provisions. But in this particular case, I would submit that the fresh start is not at all what was anticipated in drafting the bankruptcy code, where you have an exemption for the tools of the trade, some small exemption for uh, household goods, things of that nature. Because in this case, if the decision is in favor of the debtor, the debtor simply goes to the clerk's office, takes his check, can get on the first plane if he or she chooses to do so, and they're gone to Mexico. They can spend the entire proceeds in the gaming house the very first, uh, first day that they're gone. There is no requirement, there is no protection of the stream of income for retirement purposes in this particular case. And lastly, to speak about the harmonization of the various code sections. This provision within ERISA that says it will not supersede or impair other federal law functions, like the all-inclusive scope of the bankruptcy estate under Section 541, is harmonized with this reasonable needs exemption in Section 522 that deals with those exemptions. So I submit there is a harmonization by reading uh, the code as the bankruptcy trustee suggests. And I would submit to the court that to honor the plain meaning of this reasonable needs exemption in bankruptcy under 522. There should be no exclusion from the estate under 541C2, and that the bankruptcy code's pre-existing practice dealing with benefits that are prepared for distribution and ready for payment uh, when the debtor enters into bankruptcy proceedings should carry over postcode and apply in this case. I thank the court. Thank you, Mr. Agee. The case is submitted.
The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.